The following message is from Temple Bible Church. For more information about the church and its ministries, visit www.templebiblechurch.org. Well, thank you again for being here. We're grateful that you're here. In case you came in late or you're new here, my name's Chase. I'm one of the pastors here. I serve as our lead teaching pastor along with Dave and Tim on our teaching team. And we are grateful to be diving in a little bit further into our Sermon on the Mount series. We're in week three and we're going to be in Matthew chapter five. If you got a Bible or an app you want to look at, that's where we will be. Um, Crew, I think it's your last Sunday here. Is that right? We're really sad about that. I think God wants you all to get summer jobs, take summer school, and stay here for the summer. We're going to miss you while you're gone, uh, but we'll look forward to seeing you all back in the fall. I want to also just say a big thank you to our Launchpad volunteers. We did a... uh, a couple of weeks where we signed up folks to serve and got a lot of new volunteers and we're grateful as our kids ministry just continues to grow i'll tell you a specific need that we have we need four people who will serve in our his kids ministry our ministry to special needs children so if god would stir your heart to help with those kids and bless them and their families you can get more information um you can contact me you can contact danny cunningham who's leading our children's ministry right now you can go speak to the ladies our ministry associates back there that would be glad to help you know how to get plugged in there. Well, today we're in Matthew 5, 17 through 20, continuing on and really looking at the thesis that Jesus states in the Sermon on the Mount. As we do, we're going to talk about humanity and how things go awry with humanity. C.S. Lewis said there are kind of a couple of ways that things go awry with humanity and then how that can impact the third way. And the first thing he said is that people get separated from one another. Things don't go well with, with people and other people. And the other way is that we get kind of messed up in our own hearts. Inside us, things get broken. And then when those two things happen, it can really get us off course. When he talked about it, he compared it to a fleet of ships. And he said, if you've got a fleet of ships and they are going in the right direction together, all is well. But if the ships start colliding with one another, they're not going to be seaworthy very long. And then on the flip side, if you have a ship or two that aren't seaworthy, they're going to end up colliding with the other ships and things aren't going to go well. And then when they get off course, that can be a big problem because you could have a fleet of ships that are trying to get to New York and end up in New Zealand, and that doesn't work really well. Well, Lewis said that life is kind of like that. If we're always colliding with others or if things are broken inside of us or if we get off course, things don't go well. That's what had happened in Israel. The people had a vocation from God, and they didn't fulfill their vocation. They didn't carry it out. He had given them the Torah. We call it the law. It really was the instruction for his chosen people. And what Jesus is going to say is that with wholehearted devotion and a whole life lived out in perfection and righteousness, he fulfills the law and the prophets. His whole sermon shows really that we can't fulfill the law and only Jesus can, but that he has come to create a brand new people who are living with wholehearted devotion and whole life discipleship of him. 
In the last couple of weeks, we've led up to this thesis, and I really appreciate Dave and Shannon as they looked at Christian character in those first 12 verses, and then 13 through 16, as Shannon looked at us being salt and light, how conduct is carried out in Christ. And the last, ver- last part of, of Matthew five sixteen says this, It says, let your light shine in such a way that people see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. That's the goal. Anything less than that gets us off course. So then Jesus says, do not think I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for Jesus, the Messiah and King who fulfills the law. Lord, we thank you for what he came to do and and that we in Christ get to be part of this one new man, this new people he came to create, made of Jew and Gentile from every tribe, tongue, and language and nation. God, we thank you for your word and how it instructs us, your spirit, and how he empowers us. And God, as we look at this text where Jesus has been traveling and preaching, but but has not made law works the center of his teaching, and now he comes to clarify that. Help us to learn and be shaped by what we learn. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, it might be good for us to remember, this is gonna sound really simple, I apologize. I'm from Deweyville, Texas, so a lot of what I say sounds simple. Um, I know my accent being as clear and pronounced as it is, I can come across as really intellectual sometimes, right? Uh, Somebody laughed a little too much at that, right? Uh, But this is one sermon, right? It's the Sermon on the Mount, not the Sermons on the Mount. We're going to preach a lot of sermons, teach a lot of sermons from the Sermon on the Mount, but it probably took about 16 minutes and 18 seconds as Jesus said it. It's one sermon, and in this one sermon, what Jesus is doing is describing the people he has come to create, the people he is going to make, what he is going to do. He uses the word I over 20 times as he says, I know you've heard it said, but I tell you this. And what he's going to show is that his teaching fulfills the law, that he, in fact, fulfills the law, and that he is creating a people of wholehearted devotion and whole life discipleship. Jesus came to fulfill the law. Do not suppose I've come to abolish the law. I've come to fulfill it. Well, what does it mean that he fulfills the law? We're going to talk today about how Jesus fulfills the law in his teaching in his life, in his death and resurrection, and 
through his people. He is the culmination of the law. And when we hear law, we might think of just the Ten Commandments. And it is that, but that's not all. The law and the prophets, the law or the Torah, the instruction of God, Israel heard as the first five books of the Old Testament. And then the prophets were describing how Israel carried out or did not carry out God's instruction as his people that he had saved. And so Jesus says, I'm fulfilling that. And if we just stopped and thought about, well, what does that mean? Well, it was all pointing to him. As Sally Lloyd-Jones says, every story whispers his name. That if you think about Genesis, Genesis is pointing to Jesus who is the breath of life. And Exodus, that Passover lamb, is pointing to the ultimate Passover lamb. And in Leviticus, where we hear a lot about the high priest, Jesus is the high priest Leviticus would direct us to. And in Numbers and Deuteronomy, he's the cloud by day. He's the fire by night. In Joshua, he would be the scarlet rope of salvation hanging out Rahab's window. In Judges, he is the righteous and wise judge and in Ruth he would be the kinsman redeemer who saves us and buys us back we could we could keep going but we're going to stop there it's all pointing to him Jesus is the fulfillment of the law and the prophets but he doesn't just fulfill it in some general way he fulfills it in some very specific ways all of the Old Testament is pointing to him and he's going to Explain what the law was directing people to. This wholehearted devotion of loving the Lord our God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength. The people of Israel said this every day. What we know and what they knew is the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. But they got off course They had 613 laws their religious leaders had given them, and they tried to check the boxes of carrying out these laws, but they collided with one another. They were broken on the inside. They weren't fulfilling their vocation. They weren't carrying out what God intended them to carry out in his mission in the world. And Jesus came to teach that it was all pointing to him. In fact, he said to some of these leaders in John chapter 5, he said, you search the scriptures because you think in them you'll find eternal life, but it's they that teach of me. So in the short little books that we call the Gospels, Jesus 78 times is going to quote the Old Testament. He loved it. We kind of wonder, well, do we need the Old Testament? Some even teach we should do away with the Old Testament, but that's not what Jesus taught. In fact, you'll hear people even in the name of Christ sometimes point to people like Paul or Peter, writers of Scripture. Well, they thought some things in their culture, but we are educated now. We grew up in really amazing places like Deweyville, Texas. We're really smart. They don't really understand how things ought to be now. And I get how you could do that with someone like Peter or Paul. They were flawed individuals that God used to write his infallible word. But you can't really do that with Jesus, right? Because he's God in the flesh. And so if we say we follow Jesus and he said this book is authoritative, the Old Testament, and then he called out apostles who wrote the New Testament, 
then we've got to believe that this God in the flesh man, Jesus, who held this book as authoritative, he's the divine author of it. Then we've got to love the Word of God and all of it. He didn't just love the Old Testament, though. He taught it with authority. If you get the end of the Sermon on the Mount, the people are astonished at his teaching, and the reason they're astonished is because he taught as one having authority. Not like the scribes and the Pharisees. He was the one the law was pointing to, and in his teaching, his death, his resurrection, he shows us what the law and the prophets were aiming for all along. Israel missed what they were being called to, but Jesus didn't miss it. He came as God incarnate to show us the way things ought to be. And so he's calling God's people to understand. He says, not one iota or dot is going to pass away until heaven and earth pass away. That is until the end of time, until there's the fulfilled new creation where there's a new heavens and a new earth. Not one iota or dot. It's the smallest vowel markings in the Hebrew alphabet. Not one dot off an I, not one cross on a T is gonna miss from this is what Jesus is saying to them. Until all is fulfilled. I've come to show you what this is going to be about. It's not that Jesus is reinterpreting the Old Testament. He's explaining what it's meant to say all along. So he fulfills the law, and he fulfills the law in his teaching. But he doesn't just fulfill the law in his teaching. He fulfills the law through his life. Verse 18, not one iota or dot will pass away until all is accomplished. Then verse 19, therefore whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven, but whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Jesus is setting things up in verse 19 to flip everything on its head. Whoever relaxes any of these is going to be called least in the kingdom of heaven. Well, people hear this and they go, oh, that's, I don't know if I'm matching up. I mean, the Pharisees have given us these 613 things that we're supposed to do. That, that some of them might have been a great substance, but others of them were that, that they couldn't do any work on the Sabbath so that they might say even carrying a plate on the Sabbath to serve your family could be bearing a burden and you'd be guilty before God. Jesus says, if you relax the least of these, you'll be the least in the kingdom of heaven. But then he says, he who does these commands and teaches them, you'll be called great in the kingdom of heaven. And so the people hear this and they think, oh, he must be talking about the scribes and the Pharisees. They have these 613 laws and they do them all. They're the really good people. He's finally going to speak about them. What they don't understand is that Jesus is actually speaking about himself and the people he's going to create. See, he fulfilled the law in his life. He fulfilled what the prophets were speaking toward in his life. We could look throughout the Old Testament and see this, but there's really quickly four examples that would point to this reality that Jesus fulfilled the law. 
He didn't just fulfill the law, though. He fulfilled the vocation that God intended for his people. Israel, God spoke of his servant. In Isaiah 41, verse 8, he says to Israel, his servant. And so the people thought that they were the servant of God. They're going to carry this out. And there are four servant songs in Isaiah. And we're not going to read all of those servant songs, but just to kind of highlight what God said in these four servant songs about his servant. In the first one, in Isaiah 42, 1, he says, Here is my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one, in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him, and he will bring justice to the nations. So Israel's looking for 700 years for a servant who's chosen by God, who delights in God's heart, who brings justice to the nation. The spirit of God is on him. Jesus said in Mark chapter 4, he read from the scroll from the prophet Isaiah, and he said, today this is fulfilled in your hearing. I'm the servant. In Isaiah 49, the second servant song. In Isaiah 49, 6, God says of his servant, it's too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and bring back the preserved of Israel. See, that's what Israel longed for. They wanted to restore the tribes to prominence. But God said 700 years before, no, that's too small a thing. I will make you a light for the nation so that my salvation will extend to the ends of the earth. And here comes Jesus to give life to all who believe, to Jew and Gentile alike. The third servant song in Isaiah 54 through 11 really describes what was happening to Jesus before he got crucified. How he was obedient and being mocked and beaten as the servant of God. And then Isaiah 52 and starting in verse 13 and carrying on through Isaiah 53 says the servant of God will be high and exalted. But he'll be smitten. People will hide their face from him. That it will be the Lord's will to crush him and the punishment that comes on him will bring us peace. That he'll be pierced for our transgressions and by his wounds will be healed. That's what the people of God are hearing over and over and over and over. See, Israel was to serve as God's witness. They were to be a light to the Gentiles, but Israel could not fulfill its mission. Israel was deaf and blind, according to Isaiah 42, 19. They needed God's forgiveness, according to Isaiah 44, and they failed over and over again. By God's contrast, or by contrast, God's servant, the Messiah, was going to complete the work God gave him to do. See, Israel didn't have what it takes, and neither do we. And what Jesus is going to show is that really only he fulfills the law, and so we need him in our lives if we're going to live as God intended. Now, as you think about what it means to be the people of God and to carry out the vocation God has for us, this might be a good time for us to just ask, how, how are your relationships with others going? Are you colliding with people all the time? you running into them all the time? How's your heart and mind before the Lord? Are you like a seaworthy vessel? Or something broken inside that you can't fix? How's the direction of your life headed? 
Is it headed in the right direction or is it 10 years ago, you know, we had on our mind, we were going to be connected to God's people. We were going to be following Jesus. We were going to raise our kids to know the Lord and the busyness of life, the pace of life, the cares of this world have just got us pulled into port and we're really not sure where we're headed. Jesus fulfilled the law in his life and he came to create a people who were going to carry out this same sort of law. Well, people he's writing to don't understand this. Whoever does these commands and teaches them, they'll be called great in the kingdom of heaven. So the people hear this and they're thinking, oh, this is the Pharisees and the scribes. They're going to be great in the kingdom of heaven. And then Jesus says, verse 20, for I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And on the hillside that day, there's this real big collective, uh-oh, uh-oh. Because the scribes and the Pharisees, they're supposed to be the most righteous people in society. And Jesus says, your righteousness has to exceed the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees. That word exceed, it means like a river overflowing its banks. So maybe Jesus is evoking Ezekiel 47 where water flowed out of the temple. And at first it was ankle deep and it got higher and higher and higher. Or maybe he's evoking this prophetic word, let justice roll down like a river and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. Your righteousness has to exceed the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees. And these people know who they are. They know what's in them. And again, there's just this thought, Houston, we have a problem. Because the people of Israel innately knew two things about themselves. One was that they were made in the image and likeness of God. And the other is that their lives were tremendously stained by sin. As they would read the Torah every year cyclically, they would be reminded we're made in the image of likeness and likeness of God. Their vocation was to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. But like Adam and Eve, they had all been deceived. And they were stained by sin. We've got an Israel trip coming up in January. Some of you will go on that. It'll be an amazing time. You'll see beautiful things. You'll see some of the places Jesus walked. But let me tell you what you'll miss. You'll miss the smell of manure that filled the city. One of the gates was called the dung gate. They had to clear stuff out from animals that were brought in to be sacrificed. And you will miss the smell of dead animals. Over and over and over, people brought their animals to make sacrifices to God because their sins were many. 
And over and over and over, they would make the sacrifice and then go back and sin again because it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Jesus was going to be the sacrifice for sins. His resurrection would inaugurate new creation, but they didn't know this. What they knew is they were made in the image of God. And they were stained by sin. It's not that God couldn't save. Isaiah 59, 1, the arm of the Lord is not too short that it cannot save. Isaiah 59, 2, but your sins have made a separation between you and God. See, the image of God tells them who they are. Stained by sin tells them how they are. They're made in the image of God. It's who they are, but their lives are stained by sin. It's how they are. And we can see today, if you get these two confused, if you think how you are is who you are, you can find yourself identified with sins that you're committing, sins that are overflowing out of your heart, but that's not who you are. Now, the image of God is marred and distorted, but it's who we're made to be. We're made in His image and likeness so that his glory would cover the earth. They know who they are, but they also know how they are, and they have a problem. Your righteousness must exceed the righteousness of the Pharisees and scribes. The image of God gave purpose to their daily lives, but the imprint of sin meant that image was distorted, and they were broken like an unseaworthy vessel. They collided with one another. They were divided. They were missing their vocation. Well, there are kind of three things that you can do with this. And the first two don't work. One, you can hear, I've got a sin problem. I'm made in the image of God, but I've got this imprint of sin on me. I'll just muster up some righteousness in myself, and I'll just work real hard and try to do it right. That's called legalism. That's what the Pharisees and scribes were doing, and they were failing at it. There's no one on earth who always does what's right and never sins. The other is something theologians call antinomianism, and that's this, that we know God's compassionate and gracious. I can't do this on my own. We look back, Jesus died because we're sinners. We can't do it. We'll just give up. Grace is free, and it really cheapens what Jesus came to do. But then the third option is this. I can't do it, but I must do it. Oh, I've got a problem. I can't do it, but I must do it. And so Jesus comes and lives and dies and rises from the dead and then sends his spirit to be inside his people so that we would be empowered to carry out what he's calling us to do. There's a new people Jesus is going to create and he's telling him, here is what I've come to do. I've come to create a people of wholehearted devotion who are whole life disciples. It's a work only he can do, but indeed he can do it. Wholehearted devotion, whole life disciples, something we do sometimes that I think we do amiss is we reduce discipleship to a process. If you do this and this and this, then you'll grow as a disciple of Jesus. Well, no, discipleship is about all of life being transformed by the grace of God for the glory of God. And the people Jesus came to create 
aren't walking in a process. They're walking with a living God, empowered by His Spirit, instructed by His Word. But we need help to do that. As I was reading about these ideas and our need for Christ this week, I came across the story of a guy named Jack Lucas who passed away just a few years ago. Jack Lucas was a recipient of the Medal of Honor. Jack Lucas also told a very significant lie. When he was 14 years old, he lied and said he was 18 years old so that he could enlist in the United States Marine Corps. And Jack Lucas found himself at the Battle of Iwo Jima where 20 Marines received the Medal of Honor. And Jack Lucas is a recipient of the Medal of Honor, a survivor who jumped on not one but two grenades and survived. Decades after Jack Lucas jumped on not one but two grenades and survived, he was asked, why did you do this, Jack? He said, oh, I did it to save my buddies. He was willing to sacrifice his life to save his buddies. And we hear that and we rightly think, that's a hero. We're amazed by the bravery of the sacrifice. He would give himself up to save his buddies. But what Jesus Christ did for us goes far beyond that. Romans 5, verse 6, For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, not his buddies, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. There's a law we were called to carry out that we could not carry out, just like all those people sitting on that hillside, first century Galilee. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For while we were enemies, we were rebelling against God in heart and mind and life. We were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Much more now that we're reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. See, Jesus is coming to fulfill the law and create a transformed people. Jesus fulfilled the law in his teaching and he fulfilled the law with his life and he fulfilled the law through his death and resurrection. And Jesus is telling these people that he is going to fulfill the law through a new people he's creating. See, his death and resurrection will create a new people they'll be the sort of people that rather than be angry they would love their enemies rather than look with people with lust in their hearts they're going to look with love they're going to be faithful 
image bearers who keep their commitments, their yes is going to be yes, and their no is going to be no. There'll be a people who don't retaliate, but who give to those in need and pray for those who persecute them. There'll be a people whose hearts and minds and lives are so enamored with and centered around Jesus and the vocation he's calling them to, to make disciples for his glory, that their lives will be lived out in wholehearted devotion as whole life disciples for their king. Because the people Jesus would create would be indwelt and empowered and taught by the Spirit. They'd be new covenant people. The people Israel was waiting to become, they would be people who loved the Lord their God with all their heart and mind and soul and strength. And it impacted their life so much that they would teach it to their children, that the word would be on their heads, on their hands, be on the doorpost of their house, this idea that their house would be covered by what it means to follow Jesus. That's what Jesus came to create, but Israel was like ships out of sync. They were divided, they were broken on the inside, and they were terribly off course. So how are your relationships with others? Are you always running into or running away from others? How's your heart and mind before the Lord? And then what direction is your life headed? Have you been aiming for New York and ending up in New Zealand? See, Jesus came to utterly transform us for his glory and our good. Jesus fulfilled the law because these people couldn't, but then that's not all Jesus did. When the Spirit came, something happened that God said would happen hundreds of years before. God knew his people couldn't keep the covenant. He saw them break it. And so through the prophet Jeremiah, he said, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, declares the Lord, I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, know the Lord for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. See, as soon as this covenant was promised, they could know it would be fulfilled because of the one who was promising it. So Jesus came and fulfilled the law and now has created a new people of one new man, Jew and Gentile alike whose hearts and minds and lives are transformed. Whole life disciples of wholehearted devotion empowered by the Spirit and instructed by the Word.
God, these are the sort of people you have made us to be in Christ. And Jesus, we need you. We need your spirit convicting us, guiding us, counseling us, teaching us. God, we need your word's instruction. Your word says that you've perfected forever those who are being made perfect. So we thank you, God, that our position before you in Christ is righteous. God, would you make us into this people through our very lives? Father, I pray for men and women, maybe boys and girls in this room, that they hear that this is how you showed your love for us, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And they go, I don't have that and I want that. God, would you save them today? Would you draw them to you and would you give them life? And would you make us one and make us fully for you? In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to stand and sing another song. If that's you today, if you're one of those people who's saying, hey, I don't have that and I want it, I'll be out in the lobby. Our welcome team will as well. We'd love to visit with you about what it means to begin a relationship with a living God.